Curiosities. As always, I am your humble host, Osgood. An explanation of some sort is undoubtedly warranted to explain our recent absence from your playlists. As our more faithful listeners are no doubt aware, I am often forced to suffer through a great deal of trouble with my staff. Our audio engineer, Kevin, whom I keep down in the dungeon cellar, has recently kicked off a rather extended hunger strike. He, of course, claims that he was only keeping Lent. But I know better than that. I know very well when that man is resisting me. He maintains a certain perpetual pout which I consider unseemly on a grown adult. Rather than spending my exceedingly valuable time trawling through the daily want ads for a suitable replacement, I did the only thing I could. I buried him up to his neck in the cellar floor and fed him tepid gruel through a funnel. Now, of course, he couldn't work with his hands whilst trapped up to his chin like that. Hence our rather extended hiatus. However, I believe Kevin has learned his lesson and is finally willing to cooperate. So, I've returned him to his desk in the basement. Manacled, of course. He hasn't complained about the situation thus far, though I did notice him giving a few tugs to test the chain's authenticity. <laughs> Those manacles once belonged to Gilles de Ray. They are built to last. Kevin is just lucky that I cannot replace him with an automaton. At least not yet. Which brings us to this evening's tale, authored by Amy Griswold. Ms. Griswold is the co-author of the Gaslamp fantasy mystery novels Death by Silver and A Death at the Dionysus Club. She has also published multiple Stargate tie-in novels and is currently working on a steampunk interactive fiction game for choice of games. She can be found online at Amy Grizz. It will be read for us this evening by Elizabeth Chatsworth. Hypatia and Her Sisters by Amy Griswold The advertisement caught my eye at once. Governess wanted for unconventional but not improper household. Brains, common sense, and impeccable manners required. Reading the morning paper at a boarding house breakfast table was an athletic activity, requiring quick reflexes to snag the paper and quicker ones to hold on to it. Mrs. Cartwright in particular specialised in withering looks designed to make the younger generation surrender the paper, along with the most crisply toasted slices of bread 
and the last scrapings of butter. When withering looks failed her, she wasn't above wrapping knuckles with her spoon. I twisted in my seat to keep the paper out of her reach, winning a disapproving look from the Mrs. Gray. The name suited them. Two colourless ladies in perpetual shabby half-mourning for the father who had left them just enough of an income to preserve themselves in boarding-house respectability. Both seemed certain that poor posture might be enough to tip any of the residents of the house over the edge into entirely disreputable squalor. Room, board and £40 per annum, the advertisement went on. Afternoons free. Apply in person at 4 Archibald House, Sloan Lane, Chelsea. Mrs. Cartwright cleared her throat as the mechanical came in with the sausages. Miss Oliver, surely you have seen everything of interest to you in the newspaper, she said, and the spoon tapped warningly on the table. I surrendered the newspaper as the mechanical set the platter of sausages on the table with a clatter. As usual, half of them were burned and the other half pale in a way that suggested approaching death. Mrs. Cartwright rapped with her spoon at Miss Partridge, an amiable girl not long up from the country who hadn't yet learned to exercise her fork in defensive manoeuvres, who drew her hand back in startled dismay as Mrs. Cartwright claimed the least unpromising sausage. Of course I knew better than to apply for the position advertised. I was not just up from the country, and I knew perfectly well the schemes that drew honest women into dens of ill repute. The advertisement notably did not ask for references, nor did it offer any, not even the employer's name. It was most likely that upon arrival I should be seduced into unspeakable wickedness. I found myself speculating on the relative merits of unspeakable wickedness versus minding yet another houseful of children in some grimly rural country town. I had resolved this time to stay in London, but with lukewarm references, I had found it impossible to obtain a position. My little savings were fast dwindling away, squandered on boarding house breakfast and new buttons for my sensible black shoes. And yet, London. Even a half day there meant hours free to spend in a museum or music hall rather than plodding round one solitary street of shops with a list of trifles to obtain for one's employer, a heavy basket, and shoes sodden from a three-mile walk. The only consolation had been the colonel's daughter, a black-haired vixen who had expressed her nostalgia for schoolgirl romance by sneaking out to kiss me behind the garden shed. Dallying with her when I should have been preventing Ermengarde, Hortense and Jerome from setting their schoolbooks afire had resulted in the lukewarm references. Afternoons free in London rang in my head like the promise of heaven. Surely it couldn't hurt simply to answer the advertisement, I resolved. I felt particularly well qualified to resist indecent proposals from gentlemen having never had any interest even in decent ones. And surely women weren't actually kept imprisoned in dens of vice outside of the picture papers? More tea, Miss Emily Oliver, the mechanical said, 
her voice a whirring monotone. I correctly interpreted this as a question and replied quickly before one of the Grey Sisters, I had to admit I still couldn't tell them apart, could make another fruitless attempt to correct her habitual form of address. No, thank you, I said, nodding politely to the mechanical's tin face, her enameled mouth frozen in a perpetually somber expression, presumably on the theory that a perpetual smile would be taken as cheek. I am going out. My bravado deserted me on the doorstep of the Chelsea Row House to which the omnibus had brought me. I had brought a sturdy umbrella despite the lack of rain and clutched it tightly, preparing to lay about anyone who tried to drag me within. My hand shook a bit as I rang the bell and I took a step back from the door as it opened. And of course I found myself facing a mechanical. Did even the proprietors of Dens of Vice open their own doors? She was neatly attired in a parlourmaid's livery, but her face was metallic rather than enameled in the current style and sternly stylized, giving the impression of one of the merciless bronze masks I had seen in the British Museum. Looking into her face, I felt a different kind of unease. Miss Emily Oliver, I said, and handed over one of my diminishing stock of calling cards, now sadly foxed. I'm here in answer to the advertisement. I expected a whirring, yes, Miss Emily Oliver, in response, but instead the mechanical spoke in tones I could hardly distinguish from those of a living woman, with only the faintest metallic hiss under the words. If you will wait here, madam, while I inquire whether Miss Petrovna is free to see you. I stood waiting in a hallway, like any other hallway, with old-fashioned striped wallpaper and an umbrella stand into which I reluctantly thrust my weapon. I had barely time to worry over whether it was a good sign that the house possessed a mistress, or a bad one that her name suggested foreign origins, before the woman herself descended the stairs. My first impression of Ekaterina Petrovna was of aggressive untidiness. Her ash-brown hair was escaping from its knot into wild tendrils that floated about her face as if charged with static electricity, and her grey day dress was worn and wrinkled under her stained linen apron. Her hands were smeared to the wrist with oil, and she gave off a scent that I couldn't quite believe to be perfume, reminiscent of both motor cars and strong vinegar. Miss Petrovna, I said cautiously, I am Emily Oliver. She looked me up and down with perceptive eyes. I'm in need of a governess, she said, for an unusual pupil. I could hear no trace of a foreign accent. She spoke without affectation, as if we were in the schoolroom together. The position will require the utmost discretion, for reasons that should swiftly become clear. I should like you to know, Miss Petrovna, that I have no interest in taking grown-up gentlemen as pupils, I said, beginning to suspect what sort of indecent proposal this might be. I was not entirely unaware that certain gentlemen felt a nostalgia for the birch and the cane. Ekaterina laughed at that, a warm, rich sound that put me inexplicably at my ease. 
I'm not in the business of arranging gentlemen's affairs, she said, or anyone else's. And I see you had better come and meet your charge before you run screaming from my door. I hated to admit that I had been considering doing just that, and was still considering it. I settled for reclaiming my umbrella, which Ekaterina clearly noted, but didn't remark upon. I clutched it tightly as she led me up the stairs, and then up another narrower flight to the attic door. I expected a schoolroom or a nursery, and instead emerged blinking into a sunlit workroom. It looked like a cross between a dressmaker's shop and a telegraph factory. Half-assembled mechanicals stood or sat among long workbenches, with metallic hands and torsos, and the occasional disturbingly unanimated face lying on the benches among scattered tools and coils of wire. Whose are those? I asked. They're unusual. They were more elegant than the mechanicals I was used to, some with that same odd, archaic grace that suggested pagan statues. Others painted in startlingly realistic tones with shell-like mouths that curved in unsettlingly pretty bows. They're mine, Ekaterina said, and I will spare you trying to tactfully find out if it was my father or brother or some generous great-uncle who let them to me in his will. They're mine. I make them. It was a profession I'd never considered available to a woman. I felt an immediate and intense rush of envy. That must be marvellous. She looked round at me, a little startled, and then smiled slowly. Yes, it is. There's something godlike about it when they're finished, like Pygmalion must have felt when he breathed life into a statue. I see that there must be, I said, but really I meant to be able to work for your living at something like this, without answering to anyone. For my living, yes, she said, but now there was a twist to her smile that wasn't entirely happy. Before I could decide what I'd said wrong, she went on firmly. Now come and meet my most recent creation. At the end of the attic, a bay window poured in light, and a few armchairs were arranged into something closer to a sitting room than a schoolroom. A young lady was seated in the armchair by the window, looking out across the rooftops. She turned as we approached, raising her eyes to mine, and it was only as the sunlight caught the metallic sheen of her cheek that I realized she was a mechanical. I'd never seen one as lifelike, not only in the deft coloring of the face, but in its mobility. Her eyes followed me as I moved, her arched eyebrows rising and her lips slightly parted as if in curious interest. She would not have been a lovely woman. Plain was the word that came to mind, but she was an exquisite creation. One hand lay curled upon her knee, and she stretched the other out in greeting, each finger moving in perfect articulation. I was startled enough that I shook her hand. It was even warm in mine, if not yielding. I'd like you to meet your pupil, Ekaterina said. I call her Hypatia, although of course she won't be sold under that name. It'll probably be Peggy or Jane or something equally unremarkable. Hypatia, this is Miss Emily Oliver. She's going to be your new teacher, I hope. I am pleased to meet you, 
she said, looking up at me with azure eyes. Her voice was a clear soprano, with only the slightest hiss to suggest a mechanical origin. Miss Ekaterina Petrovna tells me I have much to learn. Miss Petrovna, Hypatia, Ekaterina corrected her. Miss Petrovna, the mechanical said obediently. I am pleased to meet Miss Oliver. If it's that easy to teach them proper forms of address, why in the world can't our mechanical ever learn? I asked. Because she wasn't made to learn, Ekaterina said, and Hypatia was. She patted the mechanical on the hand, as she might have petted a child who had pleased her. Excuse us a moment. Of course, Miss Petrovna, Hypatia said, and turned back to the window, observing the flight of birds about the chimney pots. We strolled to the other end of the attic. I hate to talk about her to her face, Ekaterina said. She picks things up so fast. I only woke her up this morning. You want a governess for your mechanical? I want you to teach her to be a governess herself. I stared at Ekaterina. A little smile played across her features, amusement at my disconcertion. It lit her sharp face in what some distracted part of me registered was a not at all an attractive fashion. A mechanical couldn't possibly teach children. We're lucky if ours can turn up breakfast without disaster. And children are more complicated than sausages, or so I'm told, having never had any of my own. But that is where you come in. She paced as she spoke, her unfashionably short skirts bearing her leather boots to the ankle. Hypatia is a revolutionary model of my own design, she said. She knows practically nothing of the world except how to speak, but she can go on learning. I don't have to open up her head to adjust her manners. I only have to have someone teach her better ones. A mechanical governess? Tireless, well-educated, in full command of libraries worth of facts. She can read, although you'll have to choose her reading matter for her, requiring no half days off and making no visits to nurse elderly mothers or whatever other excuses hard-pressed governesses make to win an afternoon away from their wretched little charges. A considerable investment in the beginning, but she might even be a savings in the end. Might be? My dear Miss Oliver... The customers who would purchase something like her aren't interested in savings. They're interested in possessing something extraordinary. Maynard's mechanicals can offer them that. Maynard's? She shrugged, her eyes slipping away from mine. My father's name is not an advantage in this country. British made his best, isn't that what they say? And I was born in London, so I am as British as anyone could like. And for this you'll provide room and board? Forty pounds a year? And afternoons free? My own mechanicals make the breakfast, Ekaterina said. I assure you, it won't be burnt. I am entirely at your disposal, I said. My former housemates took turns scolding me for deserting them when I went back to retrieve my things, which seemed a bit pathetic once I had them packed. A winter coat that needed mending, one large pasteboard suitcase full of clothes, and another full of books. And 
where Miss Elsinore shall find another tenant at this late date, I can't imagine, Mrs. Cartwright said disapprovingly. The same place she found me, I expect, I said. London had no shortage of down-at-the-heels young ladies, whose only requirements in a boarding house were respectability and a place to lay their heads. But I couldn't care much for their fate at the moment. I had a position and would not be banished to rural boredom for at least a few sweet weeks. But Miss Petrovna is offering room and board as well as a salary, and I'd be a fool to turn her down. I don't suppose you know anything about her, one of the Mrs. Gray said anxiously. To fend off a recitation of all the ills that could befall a young lady in the city, I provided her my address and promised, not particularly truthfully, that I would write and reassure her that I remained alive at the end of the week. At Archibald House, I installed my suitcases in what was to be my bedroom. It was sunnier than my little cell at the boarding house, and the bed was far softer. But the room was cluttered with skeletal mechanicals in various states of completion and disassembly, throwing misshapen shadows across the wall even in the daylight. It was a good thing I wasn't given to flights of fancy, I told myself, and went up to attend to my charge. It was not at all like the ordinary sort of teaching. Hypatia forgot nothing and listened with perfect attentiveness, rather than fidgeting and daydreaming and stammering through half-remembered recitals. Many governesses might have found her the perfect pupil. I could not say the same myself. Her absorption of knowledge was entirely passive. While she could feign curiosity when it would be natural to feel it, she asked no questions unless the answer was a practical necessity for her to obtain. Even my most tantalizing tidbits of history and natural science, the oddities of centuries and the far corners of the globe, could not win her, but why, or surely not, from her. Ekaterina came in as I was trying in frustration to provoke any response but silent interest and competent repetition. You know, you can't make her curious, she said. She doesn't really have sentiments or desires. It's all programming. Of course, I said, but I had nearly forgotten. It was easy, sitting with her and listening to her explanations of the spice trade and the botany of the nutmeg, to forget that she was anything but a young lady who had been so often discouraged from asking questions that she had given up the pursuit. Here, I'll show you, Ekaterina said. You're near enough done for the day. Thank you for the lesson, Miss Oliver, Hypatia said politely. You're very welcome, I said, and stood to follow Ekaterina. Hypatia followed as well, and although curious, I didn't ask why her presence was required. Ekaterina led me down the stairs to yet another bedroom that had been taken over by machinery. This one housed one enormous humming cabinet that occupied the majority of the room, with just enough room for Ekaterina to sit at the desk built into its structure. Hypatia stood, leaning back into a recess in the machinery, and closed her eyes. This is where I keep Hypatia, Ekaterina said. Her mind, that is. Oh, it's in her pretty head, too. But if it were only there, it wouldn't do me much good when it comes to making more like her. 
You must have realized that it's not practical to go through this kind of instruction with every mechanical governess I make. I had thought of that, I admitted. Ekaterina smiled sideways. But you were too polite to tell me I wasn't being practical. You see, you have much better manners than I do. I'd make a terrible model for our Hypatia. Know that bright little mind, bright but cold as you've found out, is copied every day into the calculating engine. It records the precise state of every relay and circuit in her mechanical body, so that it can all be copied into her sisters to come. How many of them are you planning to make? I thought a dozen. That should do nicely, as prototypes, I mean. There was something a bit hasty about the final edition. So you see, you're doing much more work than you knew. You have a dozen pupils, not one. You can't make her curious at all. To be a good teacher, she must ask questions of her students and keep abreast of new facts about the world on her own. I can't tell her what to say in every situation. You can direct her to ask questions. I'll be interested to see what happens if you do, actually. But you mustn't alarm her employers. It's important that she be trusted. A light of mischief came into her eyes. It's why I didn't make her beautiful. A beautiful governess, or an unusual one, always comes in for some degree of suspicion. I made her to be ordinary, not either beautiful or unusual. I expect you're right, I said. I expect you'd know, she said, and then went out before I had time to think of some suitable reply. Ekaterina had written a list of matters she particularly wanted me to attend to in Hypatia's education. Some were explicable. Manners and deportment, penmanship and composition, geography and mathematics. In mathematics and geography, it was easiest to give her the books and examine her once she'd read them at inhuman speed. Composition was more of a challenge. Her creations were predictable in the extreme, although she learned to copy my copper plate at once in place of Ekaterina's beastly scrawl. But why isn't this an excellent composition? she asked, as I read the lines that were reworded from the relevant entry in the encyclopedia into the most pedestrian of prose. I started to scold her for answering back, and then remembered I had directed her to ask questions. It's predictable, I said. It's what anyone would say. Not your own original sentiments. I have no sentiments, she said. What ought my sentiments to be? I glanced down at the composition, which was about the beauties of spring. Here you say that the birds were brightly coloured and sweetly singing. This pleases young ladies, Hypatia said, with a firmness that suggested she felt this was natural law. Well, yes, some. But what birds have you seen in London that are bright and sweetly singing? I knelt upon the settee in front of the window. I can see shivering little sparrows and glossy black crows. Write about the birds you've seen. Tell me what they make you think about. Her next composition was distinctly odder. Comparing crow's wings to the articulation of her own mechanical fingers and expressing satisfaction at understanding the physical forces that animated both. 
Conventionality reminded me inescapably of the Mrs. Grey, and I made myself write to them that night, giving them a highly edited account of my activities as governess to, as I claimed, a sheltered but amiable young lady. Others of my tasks were less explicable. I was to take her shopping and explain to her the difference between well-made clothes and poor ones, and between tasteful jewels and vulgar ones. It made for pleasant afternoons going round the shops, although I confined myself to looking in windows, not wanting to explain Hypatia to the shop owners. On the street, she passed more often than not for a young lady, and it was amusing when young gentlemen would tip their hat to her or apologise if they jostled her on the pavement. This isn't part of a governess's duties, I pointed out when we returned. It's unlikely I'll ever have to choose a diamond ring, and inconceivable that she will. Is it so unlikely? Ekaterina asked, looking me up and down in a most disconcerting manner. You're not past marrying, surely. I have no desire to marry, I said. Whatever should I want a husband for? Except perhaps his checkbook, but that seems a mercenary sort of arrangement. Extremely mercenary, Ekaterina said and for a moment her smile twisted, but then it lit her face again. Their loss is my gain, it seems, and as far as today's errands go, they will be useful to me if I decide to make a mechanical lady's maid once Hypatia and her sisters are done. That day, I feared, was fast approaching. While we still worked on composition, I still hope to direct her to some register between the worst sort of Swatish schoolgirl prose and the unsettlingly experimental. There was little else that remained for her to learn from me, rather than from a book. Ekaterina was more and more busy with her own projects, and she had banished us from the attic upstairs to have our lessons downstairs in the parlour. Hypatia spent most of her time there, reading or watching people pass by outside the window until after dinner she went up to take her place at the calculating engine so that her day's lessons could be measured and recorded. The last thing that I knew I must deliver was instruction in the moral education she would be expected to provide her charges. I spent a long afternoon explaining all the things that her charges must be strongly discouraged from doing, although by the end of the afternoon I began to regret having insisted that she learn to ask why? It was a relief when we moved from chaperonage, difficult to explain without implying too strongly that young ladies would couple like rabbits without the watchful attentions of their chaperones, to the more venial sins children were prone to. You must watch for any sign of them stealing, I said. They will, the little beasts, mostly from each other, and thankfully they're not usually clever enough to get away with it but it's your job to impose on them that it's wrong, and they'll try to disobey you as well. But you can't let them get away with it. Even young ladies who are nearly finished have to mind their elders. Of course, Hypatia said. Her face was entirely calm, as if that too were natural law. I could see all too well the vision of Hypatia instructing some unfortunate young girl to her own perfect obedience. She was the perfect model for a young lady, passive, obedient, and entirely free of vice. And I found at that moment that it maddened me.
but they must think for themselves as well, I said. If what they're told to do is entirely inimicable to their own happiness, if they're told to marry when it's not in their nature, or told they should give up dear friends because their fathers don't approve of the connection, well, they may be entirely justified. Never mind all that, Ekaterina said from behind me. I hadn't heard her come in. I think I ought to see to her moral instruction myself, don't you? After all, I'm the closest thing she has to a mother. I flushed and stammered something and fled the room directly. I spent the hours before dinner cursing myself for my ill-considered words. The last thing I needed was for a Katerina to decide that I was a poor moral influence on my charge. I was tempted to plead illness instead of coming down to dinner, but decided that was cowardly, splashed water on my face and squared my shoulders before going down to the dining room. There was a simple cold dinner laid out on the table, so we should be quite alone, without even mechanicals to break the tension. I am sorry, I said finally, after toying with my cucumber soup in awkward silence. I don't know what possessed me. Whatever are you talking about? Ekaterina said, looking genuinely startled. What I said about young ladies thinking for themselves. Oh, that. You were quite right, of course. I'm the last one who could possibly argue with you. I'm sorry if I alarmed you. She rose and came down the length of the table to clasp my hand. Forgive me for that. Of course, I said. Her skirts were pressed against my knees, and I felt my head swim, although I had barely touched my wine. How much would you forgive me? She asked, and brushed back my hair from my face. Her fingers lingered on my lips, and I kissed them. She left them there a very long time. We retired to her bedroom, and she demonstrated at once that the things I had learned from schoolgirl Pasha's were beginner's lessons indeed. She had clearly made a far more advanced study. My skirts above my waist, I had to bite my lip not to scream, and she broke off what she was doing to laugh. I wanted to shake her and might have had she not relented. I was afraid you'd leave before I persuaded you. She said afterwards, once we'd stripped out of confining clothes and lay scandalously naked in the sheets. I've never needed asking twice, I said, and set about practicing what I'd learned. The room was warm, and however much I wanted to savor every minute of the night, in the end, I couldn't keep my eyes open. When I woke, she was gone the door to the bedroom standing open. I went out quietly, drawn by curiosity, and like Hypatia, I had it in unfortunately full measure, to the door. I knew when I heard the sound of voices that I had guessed correctly where she had gone and slipped silently down the hall to the room that housed the calculating engine. The room was lit only by the lights built into its cabinet, but all the same, I kept to the shadows outside the door. You understand what you are to do once you're sold? Ekaterina asked. Yes, Miss Petrovna, Hypatia said, 
And then after a pause, But why? Because it's what I built you for, Ekaterina said. And don't repeat that, please. In fact, you're to speak to no one but me about these instructions, even if you're asked. Miss Oliver says nice ladies and gentlemen never do such things, Hypatia said. I wouldn't be so certain of that. As for yesterday's lesson on morals, consider it to be instruction in customs, not rules. Do you understand? I slipped out of the door, hardly knowing what to feel. The night's adventure had left me elated, and yet there was no construction to put on Ekaterina's words that weren't troubling. I found myself acutely aware of how little I knew about her. She had made Hypatia to be trusted, and Hypatia and her sisters would have children in their care. As I retreated to my own bedroom, I found unbidden thoughts of kidnapping and unspeakable vice once again running through my head, and after a moment's hesitation, I turned the key in the lock. The next morning, Ekaterina was cheerful, even though neither of us mentioned the events of the night before. It was hard not to return her cat's smile, but my mind kept returning to that conversation in the dark. At breakfast, there was a letter for me from one of the Mrs. Gray. I hesitated before opening it, feeling certain it would be tiresome. My dear Miss Oliver, she wrote, I am sure you will want to know that I have made inquiries into the bona fides of Maynard's Mechanicals. While the firm has a tolerable reputation, I have it on the best authority from a personal friend that the family is most unsuitable for you to become involved with. Mrs. Maynard has behaved intolerably toward her husband, undoubtedly as a result of her Russian blood, as you seem to have been under the misapprehension that your employer is a single woman. I felt it was only right for you to know. As for the child you have been employed to teach, I cannot imagine what her antecedents might be. But I can only suppose... I let the letter fall, and had to snatch to keep it from falling into the butter. Bad news? Ekaterina asked. Unexpected news, I said, in my most chilly tones. She hardly seemed to notice, directing another of those smiles, which now struck me as repulsively smug, at me. I have a surprise for you, she said. You can show me after Hypatia's lesson, I said discouragingly. There will be no lesson today. That's part of the surprise. She led me up to the attic and lit the gas lamps with a flourish. Eleven mechanicals stood against the walls, eyes closed, hands at their sides. Their clothes were an assortment of sober frocks and day dresses, but their features were identical. Hypatia, I said, but none of them responded. They can't hear you yet, Ekaterina said, although I did decide to let them keep the name. I'm making the last recording now, and the last alterations to Hypatia. Alterations? She can't stay an innocent blank slate. Think how much trouble she'd get into if she accepted anything anyone told her as true. No. After this, she can add new facts to her store, if they agree with the one she knows already but any alteration in her behaviour will require mechanical adjustment. Poor Hypatia, I said. Ekaterina smiled in unexpected sympathy. Yes, poor Hypatia. 
I'm afraid she's only a means to an end, after all. As am I, I said, suddenly unable to bite back the bitter words. I suppose now it's time for me to look for a position in some little country town, while you go running back to your husband. Ekaterina stared at me for a moment. I was prepared for lies or blustering anger. Instead, she laughed, a wild sound with little humor in it. Go back to my husband, she said. If I were a mercenary little thing, that's just what I would do. I married Arthur Maynard when I was 17. My father wanted me provided for before he died. He barely made it to the wedding day. I adored my father. I trusted him to know what was best for me. I could have used a stern dose of your kind of moral instruction. Believe me. Well, it was a disaster, of course, even if I'd been suited by nature to appreciate Arthur's efforts in the bedroom. We didn't have a kind word for each other outside of it. On our first anniversary, I asked him for a divorce. He wouldn't grant it. Oh, he was happy enough to move out and leave me this house. But a divorce? My dear Emily, he would have been killing the goose that laid the golden eggs. Maynard's mechanicals make him ten times the income he could make for himself, even if he were inclined to work. You're the one who does the work. I'm a married woman, Ekaterina said. Every penny I make belongs to my husband. He lets me have a little pocket money. He's not an ungenerous man. I found myself noticing again the shabbiness of her dress and the worn toes of her boots. That's what you're doing with the mechanicals, I said. Ekaterina raised a sceptical eyebrow, and I realised where Hypatia had picked up that particular mannerism. What am I doing with the mechanicals? Subverting young ladies, I said, teaching them not to marry and to defy their fathers, making suffragettes and Jezebels of them under their families' noses. The words tumbled out in a rush. I may have a dozen pupils, but you'll have hundreds. The original buyers will sell them on once all their children are grown. It's the perfect revenge. Her expression was unreadable. And what do you think of my plan? I took a deep breath. I entirely approve, I said. Ekaterina smiled delightedly. My dear Emily, she said, you would make an admirable criminal mastermind. You make me wish I had time to carry out your plan. Certainly, it would make England more interesting. She stroked one of the Hypatias fondly on the shoulder. No, I'm afraid my plan is a bit more relentlessly practical than that. Scraps of lessons tumbled through my mind. Would it have anything to do with the value of diamonds? You are a quick study. Six months from now, 12 wealthy families will wake up to discover they are missing assorted jewels, banknotes and cheques drawn on their accounts. Thank you, by the way, for teaching Hypatia how to imitate someone's signature. All posted to... Well... You mustn't think I don't trust you, but to tell the truth, I don't trust you that much. They'll blame the mechanicals. Of course they will. I expect a number of them will bring suit against Maynard's mechanicals, 
I should like to be here to enjoy watching Arthur explain in court that the creations he takes such pride in boasting about were really the work of his estranged wife. But I think it would really be more prudent to be elsewhere. Monte Carlo, perhaps. It was just then October and foggy. Or maybe further abroad. How would you like to see Cairo? You can't imagine I'll help you. You needn't, of course. You could go straight to the police and tell them your story. They might even believe it. Although I will tell them that you have an active imagination. But answer one question for me first. She smiled, her eyes alight with mischief. Why ever would you do that? It was a long moment before I replied. I can't imagine, I said. Six months later, we read about it over breakfast in a Bucharest cafe. The Romanian mails were uncertain, but nine of the packages had reached us already. We were quarreling amiably over whether to wait for the other three or purchase tickets for the dirigible that day. My goodness, Ekaterina said. Did you hear about poor Colonel and Mrs. Clarence? Not only were they the victim of a fiendish robbery, but now their daughter's run off with? Well, it's not clear to me just who she's run off with. Someone entirely unsuitable, I'm sure, I said. I expect some terrible influence was at work. Ekaterina sipped her tea serenely. We might wait one more day for the last packets, she said. That really spectacular diamond necklace that Mrs. Gorey wore at every opportunity. She broke off as a mechanical approached. More tea, Miss Margaret Gray and Miss Jane Gray, she said, in passable but monotone English. I could tell that Ekaterina's fingers itched to take her apart for repairs. My dear Ekaterina, I said, waving away the mechanical. We mustn't be greedy. And the sooner we're settled in Egypt, the sooner you can have a laboratory again. Sensible as always, she said, and drained her cup to the dregs. Thank you, Miss Chatsworth. I do hope we shall be hearing from you again soon. Elizabeth Chatsworth is a professional voice actor and a member of SAG-AFTRA. She prefers voice acting to on-screen work, as in a voice booth, no one can see your fuzzy bunny slippers. Her interests include cosplay, PC gaming, and writing. Find out more at elizabethchatsworth.com. And you, my dear listeners, shall be hearing from us again sooner rather than later. Of that, I can very much promise. And so long as Kevin knows what side his bread is buttered on. That boy can be programmed just as easily as our governess instructed Hypatia Prime. If one has the knack for it. And a proper lack of morals. That is a story best left for another evening. For now, it is time for us to close. Mm. 
This episode was produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution no derivatives license in the year 2017. That means don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. Tonight's story music was by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com and FreePD.com. Our theme song, as always, is Ashes, Ashes by Deus Ex Vaporum Machina. For full show notes, visit the gallery webpage at gallerycurious.com. <laughs> A proper lack of morals. Have no fear, faithful listeners. That is something I own in abundance.